commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, once again we would plead with you to meet with us this morning and to bless the reading and the exposition of your word. This is your word, Father. It is forever settled in heaven. It is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And so, Lord, we come with great reverence when we handle your word and when we seek to understand your word. Teach us, Father, that we might be changed from within, that we might walk in holiness and give great glory to the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are faithful and strong despite our weakness. May you glorify your great name this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we are coming into one of the most challenging portions of Romans chapter 7, and some would argue one of the most challenging portions of all of Scripture. Um, my prayer is that the Lord will guide our steps, helping us to rightly divide His Word so that He truly does receive the glory. He is clear on what He has said, and we are the ones who need insight and wisdom and understanding. So, Holy Spirit, help us. Um, we, are, we have been working the last couple of times together through verses 7 through 12, which falls under the umbrella of 
Paul's overall goal in chapter 7, which is to address the question of the law. Um, What is the function of the law? The Jews had placed such a high premium on the law as being that which they have received as the oracles of God, that which they took great pride in uh, for having been the beneficiaries of God's holy law. And they believed erroneously that they could somehow keep the law of God and earn eternal life. And Paul has been wanting to take a pause from his discussion of justification by faith alone and by grace alone in Christ alone to deal with these two questions in chapters 6 and 7. In chapter 6, to the lawless person, the antinomian, who would say, if grace abounds, Paul, then we can just live any way we want, and it doesn't matter. And in chapter 7, the law-abiding person, so to speak, but really the Jew who would hold to the law, to say, the Christian has a different relationship to the law than you think. Actually, we've died to the law. In this sense, we are no longer under its condemnation. If you have been joined to Jesus Christ, he has paid your penalty in full. All of your sin has been placed on him at Calvary. And because of that, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh any longer. In verses 7 through 12, Paul has been showing us not only that we have this new relationship with the law, we're free from it in the sense I just mentioned, but that, we, that the law has a great power. And the power that he wants us to see is that the law exposes sin. It shows us sin for what it is. And, and its power, which is second to the Lord's power, the greatest power in the world, in the universe, the power of sin, a great power. And it's the law that exposes that, that helps us to understand that. And so last time we worked through verses 9 through 11 and just touched on verse 12, which I'm going to come back to today. But in 9 through 11, Paul was showing us that the power of sin was manifested in two ways in his life before he was a Christian. And now that he's a believer, he's seeing it clearly. The first is that he was deceived about his spiritual vitality, his spiritual well-being. He thought he was alive when, in fact, he was spiritually dead. He says that in verse 9, I was alive once without the law. I felt alive without the law, is what he's saying, apart from the law, apart from its full impact. But when the commandment came and hit him like a freight train in his soul, sin revived and I died. I felt like a dead man before the Lord who I now understand is holy, and I am exceedingly sinful. And then in verse 10, he says that he was deceived about his spiritual abilities. He says, in the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. Paul thought that he could earn life, eternal life, by keeping the law, and he thought he was doing a pretty good job at it. When we read his testimony in Philippians 3, we see something of that, his his pride, his confidence in himself before the law, the commandment came and helped him to realize how sinful he really was. And then he was willing to exchange all his credentials and all his goodness, so-called, as rubbish 
in exchange for the knowledge of Jesus Christ, his Lord. And then in verse 11, he began to identify the source of the deception. And he says this, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. It's not the law that deceived me. It's not the law that killed me, Paul says. It's sin. And in verse 12, now he has this statement, Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Now, as we work through verses 12 through 14, I want to give three headings for today that I hope will guide us. The first is this, the law is good objectively. It's good objectively, meaning it's good in and of itself, whether we see it as good or not. It's objectively good. That's verse 12. The second point is the law is good because it exposes sin for what it really is in all its colors. We're going to see that in verse 13. And then thirdly, the law is good because it is spiritual. Paul is going to help us understand what that means in verse 14. So our topic, our theme is the goodness of the law. We're going to see it in three ways. Let's start with the, the first point here. The law is good objectively. Verse 12. Therefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Now Paul refers both to the law and the commandment in this verse. And he's really referring to one and the same thing. The law refers to not just the law of Moses or the Ten Commandments in particular, but it refers to the entire law of God. The commandment refers to the same, but could also, I think, reasonably refer to this particular commandment that he came to understand he was violating, the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. So in either case, both the law and that particular commandment as part of the whole are holy, just, and and good. What does that mean? Well, I think we understand something of the word holy. Holy means separate from sin, basically. It means that which is a direct reflection on the one who is holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. Totally separate from sin and from sinners. The prophet Habakkuk said that the Lord is of purer eyes than to behold evil, than to look on evil. He is pure. There is no taint of sin in him at all. And his law is a direct reflection of that. It's an expression of God himself. This is important because you may remember and see in verse 7 that the question Paul is dealing with is, what shall we say then is the law sin? The accusation that came up against Paul is, Paul, you're not giving the law its due place. You're undermining the law. You're um, jettisoning the law. You're sidelining it. You're, you're not giving it the weight that it deserves. And so it seems like you're just saying the law is something bad. It's sin. It's evil. So Paul is saying, is that true? Is the law sin? He says, no, it's, it's holy. It's actually 100% diametrically opposed to sin. This is as far away from sin as you can possibly get. Listen to Psalm 19 and just a couple of verses, verses 7 and 8, and just let this pour over your soul as you think about the, the holiness of the law of God. Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. 
The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The law of the Lord is is perfect. It's like a bridegroom, which is a picture of the sun, S-U-N, which comes out of its chamber and and rises high into the sky, and, and the entire earth is exposed by its light and its heat. And he says the law is like that. It's perfect. It's able to expose the darkness of our souls and bring great light, conversion to the soul of a man. The law is perfect. Psalm 19.8, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. God's law is pure, totally apart from sin, perfect in every respect. It's also just. Another translation for that is righteous, righteous, right and equitable in all its ways. Brothers and sisters, do you know that the word of the Lord is always in every case performed to the fullest? God's word is always performed, whether by obedience or by disobedience. That may sound surprising to you, but just consider a couple of verses here as well. Starting with Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, and make it bring forth and bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Amen and amen. The word of the Lord goes forth and accomplishes all his good pleasure. Whether it's in obedience, the softening of a heart, and the turning, the repentance, and a faith in the Lord and in his Son, the Lord Jesus, whereupon blessing comes, or in disobedience, where God has promised his cursing, an everlasting cursing, a damnation of the soul, For those who reject him and his only means of salvation, his son, the Lord Jesus, his law is always performed. It is righteous. It is just. No one can say to God, what are you doing? Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 8, And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law which I set before you this day? Righteous judgments. Nehemiah, in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 13, the people of God come together and they raise their voices. And this is part of their prayer. They say, you came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances, meaning right rules or upright judgments and true laws, good statutes and commandments. The Lord's word is just and right. And then Paul says, this law is also good. It is holy, it is just, and it is good. What makes God's law good? Fundamentally, because it is a direct reflection of God's character, and God is good. God defines what is good. Everything that is good in this world links back to Him and His goodness. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. 
And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. God's will is absolutely good. And his will is divided roughly into two categories, or I could say exactly into two categories, based on Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things of the Lord, his secret will, which he does not give anyone visibility into, nor should we try to gain visibility into it. That's the secret counsel of God. But then there is the things that we have been given. This word is his revealed will to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. His will that we have is perfect. His will that we don't understand is perfect. You can trust it. Psalm 19 verse 10 regarding the judgments of God. More to be desired are they than gold. Yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. His word is good. It's valuable, the most valuable. And it's sweet to the taste, sweet to the taste, sweeter than honeycomb for those who have spiritual taste buds. Psalm 19.11, Moreover, by them, your judgments, your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. That's right. Eternal life, knowing God, seeing Him face to face. His law is good. Psalm 119, verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. There's the just, or the justice of God's law. Psalm 119, verse 140. Your word is very pure, therefore your servant loves it. There's the holiness of God's law, purity. And Psalm 119, verse 143, Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delights. There's the goodness of the Lord. And a goodness that's not only objective, but a goodness that the psalmist knows in his experience, subjectively. Good to my senses, delightful to me and to us. When my anxious thoughts multiply within me, your consolations delight my soul. Brothers and sisters, do you find that to be true? When your heart is anxious and your anxieties are spinning up like a whirlwind within you, where do you turn? May we cry out to our Father, Daddy, and help us. Your your word, your consolations, your law is a delight to the soul of your children. Amen? Yes. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones um, said this regarding the law of God, which I thought was insightful. He said, quote, There is no better life than a life lived in conformity with God's law. Anyone who lived such a life would be living the best conceivable type of life. That's absolutely true. In fact, it got me thinking about that book that we've all heard about for years, Your Best Life Now. Who's the only person who has ever lived his best life now? Truly. 
if the definition is one who lives in perfect conformity to the law of God, Jesus Christ in his humanity is the only person who has ever and will ever live his best life now on this earth. No one else can say that or ever do that because we're sinners. We don't live perfectly conformed to God's law. The Westminster Catechism defines sin this way. It is this, any want of, meaning lack of, conformity to, or transgression of the law of God. Either not doing what the law requires or crossing the line and doing what the law says is prohibited. Either way, you've sinned. Or in the language of the Apostle John in 1 John 3, 4, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Transgression, breaking the law. So to say that we live our best life now is to ignore that we are sinners, and honestly, it is to put man in the place of Jesus Christ, in the place of God. That is idolatry, and that is blasphemy. The law is holy. And the commandment is holy, just, and good. His law is objectively good outside of ourselves, but by God's grace, it is good to those who use it lawfully. What is that? The law was not made for unrighteous or for the self righteous, it was made for sinners, for the unrighteous, to expose our sin that we might see our great need for salvation. The law is good. Now, so that's the first point. The law is objectively good. The second point is this. The law is good because it exposes sin for what it really is. It exposes sin for what it really is. Verse 13 of Romans 7. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good. So that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Now, verse 13 is what's called a hinge verse because it could connect either to verses 7 through 12 as a section, or some people connect it as the beginning of a section from verse 13 all the way down to verse 25. Um, It's a hinge verse because this question that Paul is asking is really related in verse 13 directly to the question he asked in verse 7. Is the law sin? Is is what is good become death to me? It's the same kind of question asked slightly differently. So you can see how it would be lumped in to the first half. But his pattern, as far as I can see, has been that he starts a section, a subheading, with a question. So, you know, verse 7, what shall we say then? Verse 13, has then what is good become death to me? Um, And he did that also in chapter 6 a couple of times, at the beginning of chapter 6 and in verse 15. So it doesn't really matter. It's really all one logical progression of thought. But for those of you who are trying to organize things into compartments, verses 7 through 12 could be a heading or 7 through 13. Either way, I think is acceptable. So what is he talking about when he says, has then what is good become death to me? Well, he's been talking about the law, right? The law that is good, holy, just, and good. Has that law become the ultimate cause of my death, and therefore it's evil. Is It's sin. That's the question he's asking. And Paul is addressing this because he knows that when he writes, he's going to be misunderstood by people. He's going to be misunderstood especially by the unbelieving. 
And so he's always careful to clarify his statements. If you look at verse 11, for example, he said, For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it killed me. You might read that and you might conclude that it was the commandment, the law, that killed you or killed him. And he's saying, no, it's actually sin. Here in verse 13 he says, certainly not. Or God forbid, it's the strongest form of no that he could use in the Greek. Mi yenito, certainly not. But sin that it might appear sin, now he's not talking about individual sins here, he's talking about sin as a whole, as an entity, its nature. Sin that it might show itself for what it really is, show its true colors, was producing death in me through what is good. Now, um, this is where having some understanding of the Greek is helpful because Paul uses the same words in different locations and it's good to link those together. This word he uses for producing in verse 13, katergazome, is the same word that he used back in verse 8. In verse 8 he says, but sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me. That's the same word. And we saw when we looked at chapter, uh, verse 8 that it meant to work out to completion within him. In other words, sin had set up um, a base of operations, is what taking opportunity means, or leveraged as a fulcrum the law of God to its own advantage in order to fully work out in me to completion every time all manner of evil desire. It's an incredible statement. He's talking about the power of sin. It was a machine that was producing nothing but sin and more sin and death in me and in us. And there was nothing to stop that process before we came to Christ. It worked out sin to completion every single time. That's the strength of this word he's using here in verse 13. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me, working it out to completion. It's the same idea as verse 8. Through what is good, again, that's the commandment or the law. But now he gives us this further insight. He says, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. Very interesting word that he uses, actually a couple of words he uses here. Paul uses a compound Greek word, the word that means to throw beyond a mark. So think of throwing a, a football or a ball beyond a particular mark. But then he adds a, another word, kata, in Greek, which strengthens that form as if to say to throw way beyond that mark. That's the idea when he says that sin through the commandment might become or show itself to be super sinful. In other words, God's law, his good law, not only convinced Paul that he was a sinner, that he was a covetous man because he had broken, violated the 10th commandment, but also to showcase to him the depths of his own depravity, that he was full of evil desire because the Sin was using the law, abusing the law, leveraging the law in order to work that out fully in him every single time. See, sinners are totally deceived by sin. 
totally deceived by sin. Paul said the same thing last time we looked at this in verses 9 to 11. But the law comes in like a, a light, a spotlight, and it shines on our sin. And this is where we get to an understanding of the real purpose of the law, the, the goodness of the law. See, the Jews had a very different idea of the law's goodness. If you were to ask the Jew what your idea of the law's goodness is, it's exactly what Paul described back in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 17. He says this, speaking to the, to the Jew, and particularly to an opponent of his who is not accepting his doctrine, this truth of the gospel. Romans 2.17, Indeed, you were called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul says, you who judge others, you're doing the very same thing and you're really condemning yourself. See, they, the Jews viewed the law as good because they had it. It's the, it was the special oracles of God, but they had a wrong idea of their ability to keep it. Paul was an example of that, as we saw. Paul says, don't you realize you're only condemning yourself because you're not able to fulfill the law the way that God requires? No, the, the law is not a, a tool, a, a means of salvation directly. That's, that's the big error. It's this. It's a spotlight to expose our sin so that we cry out for salvation, so we see our desperate need for salvation, so we see that we have zero righteousness and ability to stand before a holy God. The law was never meant to save anybody but just to show the exceeding sinfulness of our sin to us. God already sees it. He sees all things. He sees the heart where no man sees. He reads your thoughts before you even think them. But he needs to show us our sin, and this is his grace. He doesn't have to. He doesn't have to at all. He could pass us by and let us die in our sins, and he would be perfectly just. But in his infinite mercy, in his salvific nature. He does this law work in our hearts so that we would see our need of Him. You see, unbelievers, unbelievers think of sin in different terms, don't they? They think of sin in terms of wrong actions that they do from time to time. They think of sin in terms of mistakes, in terms of things that they need to learn from in order to do better in the future and just avoid those mistakes or errors. Most people don't see sin as Really what the Bible describes as a cancer on the soul of a man which so infects every part of him that even his thought life, his emotions, and his will are totally 
corrupted and fallen because of sin. Neither do the unregenerate see that sin is actively producing death in them all the time. That machine is at work and they don't see it. And that God's wrath is all the while burning hot against them. And that it will consume them for an eternity in hell if they don't turn and repent, if they don't wake up. That even a so-called tiny sin is so treasonous against a holy God that it is more than enough to condemn their soul to an eternity in hell. This is our God. He is thrice holy. He will not abide sin. He burns hot against sin. Thank God for the law work, right? Thank God that he's opened our eyes to see this truth and to turn to him in faith. I want to consider one other aspect of verse 13. This is something I I just was thinking about as I was studying this text. And, um, you know, when I first was reading verse 8 and verse 13, you, you definitely get a sense of what sin was doing to us by leveraging the law of God in order to wreak havoc on us. You you get a sense for that. But let's consider maybe another facet of this. If God's law is holy and just and good, which it is, then how does God feel about sin leveraging and abusing His holy law in order to further its own evil purposes in us? Do we think about it in those terms? That we and the sin in us was abusing the Lord's good, holy, just law. And I think this text gives us some insight in verse 13. See, in order for God to expose sin to our eyes as exceedingly sinful, which He has, He allowed His holy law to be abused by sinners to be dragged through the mud, to be spurned, to be ignored, to be disobeyed time and time and time again. This is the patience and long-suffering of our God. What I'm calling attention to is the fact that God allowed sin to disrespect and even pervert His holy law, which is set apart from sin. He allowed that to happen for the greater purpose of exposing sin's sinfulness to our eyes so that we might be saved, brothers and sisters. That was a cost he was willing to endure in order to rescue our souls. That strikes me as amazing. In fact, it makes me think, makes me think of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, doesn't it? God who sent his Son into the world, who Hebrews 1 describes as the radiance of God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature. This Jesus Christ, who is described very much like the law, good, holy, just, he's allowed to come into the world, and he willingly does this, to be abused by sin, to be mistreated by sinners, And for all of our sin to be placed on his shoulders where he is condemned by the Father for us. 1 Peter 2, verse 22, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. That's from Isaiah 53. 
who when he, Jesus, was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Why did our Lord Jesus allow himself to go through all of that abuse and mistreatment? That we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. To rescue a people for himself who would be holy and who would bring great glory to his name for having redeemed us. And ultimately, that he would expose sin in us by his law overpower it in our lives, which is our sanctification, this is what he's doing in us now, and ultimately destroy the devil and his works forever. This is what the Lord Jesus has done. Hebrews 2.14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, And then in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that even death itself will be swallowed up in victory. Jesus Christ will have every enemy, including death, put under his feet, where he will reign forever and ever, and we with him. Praise the Lord. So the law is good objectively. It is good because it exposes our sin for what it really is and brings us to salvation in Christ. And then thirdly, the law is good because it is spiritual. Look at verse 14 of Romans 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, anytime you start a sentence with four, it's a connecting thought to what came immediately prior. He's explaining verse 13. And how do we know that what is good was not the cause of our death? Here's the answer. For we know that the law is spiritual. The law is good. What does he mean here by we know? He uses the word that means to perceive. We understand. We know. He changes from the first person singular, which he's been in for a while up until this verse, I, in his personal experience, to a first person plural. He's saying we now. Why is he saying that? We know. Well, Paul, when he does this, and he's done this a couple of times before, he's establishing a principle, something that we all know. He did this back in chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And he did it again in chapter 3, verse 19, where he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. So what is this that we know, that we perceive, that we understand as a principle? Well, we know that the law is spiritual. It's, it's not just ten commandments that were written on tablets of stone. The source of God's law, which is another way of saying his word, is God himself. And God is spirit. So his word comes from himself. He is spirit. His word is spirit. In fact, it's spirit-breathed. We see that in 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration. Literally in the Greek, God-breathed. 
and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. His law is breathed out by his Holy Spirit. It is spiritual. His law is from the realm of the Spirit, is another way of thinking about this. It's, it's not from the realm of the flesh. It's not found anywhere on this earth, in this earth, or above this earth. It comes to us from another realm entirely. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89. Your word is settled in heaven forever. So the source of God's word is heaven. It is eternal. It's not bound by time. It always was. It always will be. And it's unchanging. It cannot be corrupted. It's incorruptible. Pastor Stan quoted James 1.17 this morning, which I so appreciated. Thank you, Lord. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And this good gift that we are considering is this, the law of God. It's a good gift, a perfect gift, not tainted by the corruption of this fleshly realm, earthly realm. And this law is spiritual because it is only able to be understood spiritually. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, but the natural man, in other words, the earthly man, the man who is born in this realm from Adam, that's all of us in our first birth, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul is talking about the wisdom of God, which he calls a hidden wisdom in 1 Corinthians 2. This wisdom must be revealed to us, brothers and sisters. We don't understand it, and we can't search it out on our own. His law that comes to us, comes to us written with letters and words on stone, on parchment, on paper, but understand that the letter of the law is not the, not the ultimate meaning of the law. There's a spiritual meaning behind the letters. And we have to have a spiritual understanding in order to discern what he's saying rightly. This spiritual law can only be kept, obeyed, fulfilled by the Spirit of God in a spiritual way. Our uh, reading this morning was Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10 is so wonderful because this section, starting in verse 12, deals with the essence of the law. What's the heart of the law? What's the spiritual nature of the law? We know what the law says in its words. Here's the essence of the law. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him? to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. This law of God is to be kept not by lip service, not externally by some idea of external compliance with the law, but is to be kept from a heart of faith toward God, a heart that in fact loves God more than anything else. That is, in fact, the first commandment, is it not? To love the Lord, to have no other idol before him, but to love him supremely. 
And the person who does not do that is the worst sinner. This law is spiritual, and it is to be observed and kept from the heart spiritually. David in Psalm 51, 6 said, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. This law of God must be transferred from tablets of stone where it is etched to being etched on the tablets of our hearts. That's the new covenant promise. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In other words, the Lord is going to put His law in the innermost person, in the innermost place of you, in your heart, where you care, where you love, where you desire. That's where the law of God must be. And if it's not there, it's not the spiritual law that you're observing. Paul in chapter 8 of Romans verse 4 is going to say that he's, the righteous requirement of the law can only be fulfilled by those who walk according to the Spirit. Those who walk and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and who have His Spirit. That's the only way the law can be fulfilled. That's the only way we can love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Not perfectly but with his ability that we didn't previously have. So the law is spiritual. And it's this spiritual law that came to Paul in great power to assess his true spiritual condition to his eyes, which was what? That he was dead. That he was dead. So that he would cry out for deliverance. So the letters on the page, brothers and sisters, we know this. The letters on the page will never convince someone of their spiritual deadness. The Spirit of God must take His breathed Word and must apply it to our hearts, must write it upon our hearts, and must convince us that these things are true. And our neighbors and friends and family and all those whom we are praying for for salvation. So Paul says, we know, or we know that the law is spiritual. In fact, he uses the perfect tense of that verb to know. So what he's actually saying is, we have known or we have perceived that the law is spiritual. In other words, all who are united to Christ by faith have perceived that the law is spiritual ever since the law came in power to us. We know it. We perceive it. And then he says this phrase, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Um, carnal, meaning fleshly or in the flesh, the opposite of spiritual. Earthly instead of heavenly. Mortal instead of immortal. I am carnal, sold under sin. Now, if you've been tracking with the text since chapters 6 and 7, you're probably asking yourself a few questions right now. Paul, I thought you were saying that we were no longer in the flesh, that we were no longer fleshly, fleshly meaning carnal or, or vice versa, 
why are you then saying that you are carnal, sold under sin? In the present tense. This verse has been a troubling verse for many people, and there is a lot of discussion on what Paul is talking about. Who is this man that he's describing, particularly verses 13 or 14 down to 25? And it hinges upon this verse, verse 14. I am carnal, sold under sin. The word he uses for sold is not an unusual word. It's a word we understand. It means to dispose of merchandise, but it also means to sell one into slavery. In fact, it's the same word that's used in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, when the text says, but as he, this unforgiving servant, was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. That's the same word Paul is using here when he says, I'm carnal, sold under sin. And sold under sin meaning uh, not just under sins individually, but under the entity of sin. He's personifying it again like he did for us in chapter 6 a couple of times. I'm sold under this entity of sin. I'm a slave to it. He also uses the perfect tense for this word sold, which is really interesting because the perfect tense describes an action that happened in the past that never needs to be repeated. It has continuing effects in the present and in the future. It's a one-time action that never needs to be repeated. So he's saying, I was sold under sin and will remain in that condition forever. Is that confusing? I mean, it was confusing to me when I considered everything that Paul said in chapter 6. Look back at chapter 6, verse 2. He says, in answer to this question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? We've died to sin. How can we be sold under sin if we've died to sin? Verse 7 of chapter 6, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Verse 11, likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. It won't rule over you anymore. That's a statement of fact. For you are not under law, but under grace. Verse 17, but God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin... Uh, Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Verse 22, but now having been set free from sin and having become slaves to God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. So Paul was crystal clear in chapter 6 that he was not sold under sin any longer, but was actually sold under righteousness, right? So Paul, why are you saying that you are carnal, fleshly, and sold under sin here? And so here we go with the views. There are different views on what this passage means, who the person is that he's describing. The first view is Paul is describing an unsaved person, an unsaved or unregenerate person. And the argument is, verse 14 He's carnal, he's fleshly, he's sold under sin. How could you say that of a regenerate person? Especially in the light of what Paul said in chapter 6, right? 
The second view is Paul is describing a saved person, a regenerate person. And the argument is, if you look what follows, starting in verse 15, which we'll get to next time in two weeks, Lord willing, we've got Easter Sunday next week. Verses 15 down to the end, there is a picture of an intense spiritual battle that is taking place in Paul where he is warring against his flesh. And the trouble is the unsaved don't have that warfare. They don't have that fight. Um, you, You may remember the Lord's example of the strong man, fully armed, who keeps his goods in peace inside his palace. That's a picture of Satan who has dominion and control over all the unregenerate, the the natural people who are born in this world. He's got them under his control and they're passive. They're, They're spiritually drunk. They're spiritually dead. They have no desire to leave his kingdom. They have no ability to leave his kingdom. And it's the stronger man, which is a picture of Jesus Christ, who must break in on that strong man and dispossess him of his weapons and of his captives. And spoil all his goods. That fight only exists once we are liberated from the kingdom of darkness and we come into the kingdom of light, brothers and sisters. So that's, that's the reason why there's a good argument that this is about a regenerate person. You listen to Paul talking and he's talking about desire. He's talking about emotion. He's talking about his will in this section. And when he describes himself in this fight, he's saying, I want to do the right thing but I just don't see how I can do it. That's the struggle. Then there's a third view, which is some say that this is a regenerate person who's just spiritually weak, the quote-unquote carnal Christian. And the argument is, well, we can't really make sense of either being unsaved or saved, so we're going to make a hybrid and call this a saved person who's just acting like an unsaved person, spiritually weak. And he needs a second experience of grace by which is meant a filling of the Holy Spirit after being born again in order to mature. And they would cite 1 Corinthians chapter 3 when Paul speaks to the church at Corinth and he speaks to them as carnal. And he, he seems to indicate that they, though they are Christians, are also carnal. So they build a theology around this idea. He says, brethren, in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians verse 1, I could not speak to you as to spiritual, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it. And even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So there's the third argument. Saved but carnal, weak. I want to give you my conviction. Um, I see that Paul is writing in the present tense, and he's describing himself as the Apostle Paul, who is a mature Christian, a saved person, who has been recounting his own conversion experience, what he was like when he was in the flesh, then his realization when the law came in power. He's recounting his conversion, and now he's going to describe what he knows to be true of himself in the present, now that he's in the Spirit. So in verse 
verses 14 to 25, what I see is Paul is speaking as a new spiritual person who is still incarcerated in a body of death. That's the interesting dynamic that I think is going on here. Paul is speaking as a regenerate person who is no longer in the flesh, but in these verses he acknowledges that the flesh is still in him. Let me repeat that because that is really important. Paul is no longer in the flesh, but he acknowledges that the flesh is still in him. Look at uh, chapter 8, verse 9. Paul says this of Romans. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. He does not belong to him. So Paul's saying, Romans, church, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God. Well, is he saying that the Spirit of God has not yet come and is going to come, so you're still in the flesh? No. We'll go back to chapter 5, verse 5. He said, Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Holy Spirit was already given. In fact, that's the only reason that you believed the gospel message that Jesus is the Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that no one calls Jesus accursed who has the Holy Spirit, and conversely, no one who has the Holy Spirit, no one can call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You must have the Spirit of God in your heart in order to hear the message and believe the truth. So, clearly, the Spirit has already come. Paul is describing a saved person. He's describing himself He's no longer controlled by the flesh like he was before when he was in the flesh. But this flesh still hangs to him. It's frustrating him. It's not the dominating influence in his life anymore. It's no longer the tyrant that commands you do this and he had to obey. In fact, the way he puts it is in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. This is really helpful. He says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So there is Paul is describing the old man. That was his old nature. That was the controller that was in his life. That sin nature, that's died. That's been crucified with Christ. And what remains is this body of sin, and he says that the body of sin might be done away with. That's not a good translation in the New King James. The right translation is that it might be deprived of its power. The body is still present. It has sin in it, but it is greatly deprived of its power. So it is not the controlling element. That sin nature is not cooperating with this powerful, sinful body anymore. The body's been deprived of its power. The old nature has died. It's gone. It's been crucified with Christ. So here in verse 14... When Paul says, I am carnal, sold under sin, I believe what he is doing is making a distinction between two identities that he finds within himself. Not two natures, but two identities. He identifies on the one hand his fleshly body, which is where sin dwells. It's the place that he says is where nothing good dwells in verse 18 of chapter 7. 
And then on the other hand, he describes this new I, personal pronoun, I, me, Paul, which is the real Paul, the spiritually new man. This I is the one, he says in verse 22, who delights in the law of God according to the inward man. So when Paul refers to I in verse 14, he's not referring to the real Paul, but he's actually using that to refer to his fleshly body, to the body of sin we just read about in verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 6. Or, or you could say this, his unredeemed humanity, this thing that's still hanging on to him even though it's been deprived of its power. You say, how do you know that? Because in verses 17 and 18, and I think this is the key to understanding this uh, question, Paul is going to redefine his identity with his own words. Look at verse 17 of Romans 7. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Verse 18, for I know that in me, that's a key distinction, in me, not me, but in me, and then he says, that is in my flesh, Nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me. That's the new man, the new Paul, the real I. But how to perform what is good, I do not find. I'm going to save expositing that until we get to verse 18. But suffice it to say for now, Paul is redefining his identity. He does this also in the book of Galatians, in chapter 2, verse 20, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So Paul is redefining who he really is. He's not the man he used to be. He is now a new spiritual man bound up in identity with Jesus Christ. It's the very life of Christ that's in Paul that he's identifying as his new self. I wanted to show you this model from... Ezekiel chapter 36, but I think I'm going to say that for next time. Um, hmm. Yeah, for me, what's really compelling is the desires that Paul talks about in this conflict, internal conflict. Unregenerate people do not have holy desires. This man has holy desires, and he finds himself to be frustrated, and, and the Lord is bringing him to the point where he is going to cry out in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He has the Spirit of God, and he's going to talk about the Spirit of God and the Spirit's power as our sanctifying power as we get into chapter 8. And then later in chapter 8, he's going to talk about the ultimate freedom and deliverance from the body of sin which is coming in the glorification when our bodies are going to be made new and we will finally drop these bodies of death and rise totally redeemed body and spirit. That's what I think Paul is getting at here. The struggle of every believer in the Christian life and a dissatisfaction that we can't obey God's law fully the way we want to. So the law is good because it is good in and of itself as a direct reflection of God who is holy, just, and good. And by God's grace, we know it to be good in our subjective experience because he's made us to see our sin. The law is good because it exposes sin as exceedingly sinful in us and drives us to the cross where 
we see our righteousness. Jesus Christ is his name. His life was perfect. His death was satisfactory to the Father in every way. And because of that, he was raised from the dead, never to die again. And the law is good because it's spiritual. It comes from God, can only be understood through God's Spirit. It must be obeyed from the heart and can only be fulfilled by those who have the Holy Spirit, who trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous. The law was never meant as a means of salvation. It has no power to save, but it is good because it convinces us of our lostness and drives us to the one who can save. Friends, have you called on the name of the Lord this morning? Have you, do you continue to call on the name of the Lord every day? That is the mark of the Christian. We not only call on the name of the Lord in our conversion when we first cry out to him, but every true child of God continues to cry out because we are getting a sense more and more of our sinfulness and the weight of that sin, the, the conflict that stirs up within us is intense but it always drives us back to our Savior. Look to Him. His consolations will comfort your souls. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let's pray.